Welcome to Podcast on Fire on Forbidden City Cop and Anna and the King. And Stephen Chow returns, reprises, puts forth a variation of his secret agent character as first seen in From Beijing with Love. But now we've got a period effort and he's essentially Agent 00Q Division in the smash hit Forbidden City Cop. Also, Chai in fact continues his Hollywood adventures and this time he's getting a meaty role versus Jodie Foster in Anna and the King. There's no singing, there's no bald head from Chai and Fat Ali Yulbrunner, so i.e. this isn't The King and I, the music, the famous musical based on the same uh, based on the same novels and all of that. We'll get into it, I'm Kenny B and with me, and uh, this is, as I say, as always, when I have this guy on, this is where I steal from his show. So with me from his news desk with a newly shaved head in order to get into the mood of watching the Yul Brynner movie, and just now he's realizing he's watched the wrong movie, is East Green, West Green's Kevin Ma. Hey there, Ken. Oops. Yeah, yeah, my God, my hair. All gone now. We, we, we'll have to do a time cut in the podcast. Uh, like, uh, tick, 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 tick. Okay, Ken, I'm back. I've watched Anna and the King now. I'm ready. <laughs> How is everything going? Nothing. You know, I was, let's say, I was getting to know you, Ken. Okay, that's like a king guy thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I'm, uh, and I only have a partially shaved head, and uh, on the top is the, is the damn... It's the damn Mohawk. 38 years old and I'm still still rocking that thing. So I'm never, I'm never growing up. Uh, but now I can do it like uh, Yul Brynner, of uh, course. Uh, uh, shaved head style and all. But uh, we had you on uh, when we first initiated our discussion uh, of the Giant Fat Adventures in Hollywood. Um, I did a corruptor with another co-host. Uh, so do, do you remember offhand if... Um, if you liked The Corruptor, uh, Chai Fat's second Hollywood movie, this being his third, uh, what do you remember spontaneously? Oh, I, I, I love The Corruptor. Well, in hindsight, I loved The Corruptor more than when I first watched it, but I still think it's his best Hollywood film. It was the closest thing he was going to do. He was doing in Hong Kong, you know, playing that sort of half-dirty cop, the, the police triad, the close link. It's very much like a Hong Kong, a Hollywood-esque Hong Kong film, and I think Chai Fat felt more comfortable in that vein and and i think that was my favorite uh hollywood charm fat film still i mean to this day you know i I was sort of disappointed initially myself because i i don't know what i was expecting and now when i rewatched it for the show i could see it's very solid and a step up and he's uh, clearly comfortable talking five thousand percent more compared to the replacement killers where they kept his dialogue to a minimum and that's not a bad thing a non-verbal part is uh a challenge in itself he can do that uh, but uh, it was nice to see him just be a chatterbox for his second movie and certainly in this movie the poor bugger is uh taking a uh, taking quite on quite a workload language wise which we'll get to in the second uh, second half not just english people uh, but uh, at any rate uh, we'll uh, get the uh, show on the way and some uh, plugging uh, out of the way you're, you're a busy man and uh, sometimes you can share sometimes you can't share but uh, if a keen movie watchers who stay for the entire credits roll uh, have still have keen eyes and are looking at each and every uh, person in the technical crew in some chinese slash hong kong movies they might have seen your name kevin why would that be that's right because uh, i do uh english subtitle translations for uh for chinese uh language films uh so i've done three movies four actually no four five five i'm on my fifth movie this year already 
uh, and two of them have already come out, and that's uh, a Better Tomorrow 2018. You don't, see, you won't see my name in the credits there because I've already seen the film and I checked the credits because that's what I do for all my films. Ken, I check. That's the, that's the thing that matters is checking if my name is in the credits. Aren't they contractually obligated to credit you? I was like, no, no. I mean, no. I mean, it's something that. It's nice to have, but I barely have the clout to negotiate for the store stuff. I mean, I, I can ask nice, nicely, and they, they usually oblige. But it just depends on who who in the production is uh, calling me up and who in the production is asking me to 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 work on it. Uh, sometimes it's sort of out of the, the, the people's control, and sometimes it's within the director's control. And that really depends. But So I didn't ask for better uh, credit in Better Tomorrow, and they didn't do it because it was the international sales team that asked me to do it, not the production team. Gotcha. Whereas, yeah, whereas the uh, my second film this year was uh, Monster Hunt 2, uh, the Ramen Hoi film. Um, and I actually um, worked at the, the, the post-production team on that one, so I did ask for credit, and I got, got it. Well, well, those are not small moves. Obviously, one is a high-profile thing that's going to be judged regardless. And I've not seen it yet, but um, better tomorrow that is. But uh, obviously, Monster Hunt 2 uh, did some nice business during the Lunar New Year at the time of recording. Probably is in cinema still and raking in some money, but uh, that's nice. I mean, they're not little, little indie flicks that you asked to contribute to. But uh, Robert, you know, a big production. So, and, and it seems like you are not killing yourself getting the job done and there's not a ton of pressure that just burns you out or anything yeah like you conceive and well you, you you don't conceive but you execute well no actually the thing is i also do a lot of work that aren't credited or that aren't seen by most people you know things like for example um scripts you know because they have scripts they want to give maybe they have a foreign writer or they want to put it give it to a a foreign uh, a company that might buy the films or they need an english version of the script and i do that uh, and I've worked on some pretty big projects there too. Uh, I also do some, you know, translation for the Hong Kong Film Archive, so their booklet. So most recently, I did, I handled all the English blurbs of their Anita Moy Leslie Chen program, which is coming up uh, starting this month, I think. And that was a pretty big, epic 36 film program, and I handled all the blurbs there. But yeah, there's no credits for those publications. Um, well, it must be an honor to work on something like that, especially if the Hong Kong Film Archive strives to preserve and uh, still spotlight catalog titles and important titles important actors and actresses and so forth so in in a way it must be an honor i guess to uh, make sure that gets uh, spotlighted uh, properly oh yeah it's a huge honor but of course it's very daunting because i've never worked on a big 36 film pro because I, I also write stuff for film festivals right like um i do the hong kong asian film festival but then a team a team of people that happens to include me we do the blurbs and that's like 60 something films but this is handling all 36 films and actually having to not just write the basic plot synopsis it's about trying to angle it it relevance with the program so it has to be about for example a nina moy film then has to be about at what point of her career is this film land on or same for leslie chun uh, and to have to look for that angle was was a lot of extra work. Well, uh, make sure to give me a call when you do the 36 movie category free Charlie Cho retrospective because uh, I, <laughs> I, I I'll, I'd love to join the uh, the category the, the Coxman of category free program that the Hong Kong <laughs> Film Archive defo will do <laughs> <laughs> well I, I i'm definitely still trying to push for the 36 film michael Wong program and that hasn't happened yet so let's see well there, there's uh he volunteered people uh get to work and uh and uh michael is uh probably c- circling uh, kevin's uh, building right now i'm in <laughs> i'll do it 
at any rate, the, the, those are the things you do sort of uh, out out in the wild. But if people uh, want to see your work in on social media or whatever, are there any plugs that you want to fl- throw out there to listeners? Well, yeah, if you happen to fly uh, Cathay Pacific Airways or Cathay Dragon Airlines, I am the entertainment editor of the two uh, in-flight magazines. That's uh, Discovery and Silk Road. I do a little piece online as well for the website, discovery.cathaypacific.com. And I also kind of a website that I barely update anymore. It's called Asia and Cinema. And you can see if I don't update, that means I'm super busy with with my film translation work. And if I do, then that means I fit in with Asia. So you can kind of tell my life habits or my, my my yeah my life habits just by more my life schedule just by seeing how frequent update the website but yeah there's that website yeah cl- clearly you're not uh, procrastinating or anything like you 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 like you're working uh and, and you're <laughs> not like binging uh binging that uh, house show that japanese reality show instead of uh <laughs> instead of writing and i'm and and i'm and i'm not judging you for it because i i love when you guys discuss that uh uh uh, I forgot the name of it. It's called House Something, the Japanese reality Terrence show. House. Terrence House. Terrence House. And uh, when uh, talking to Paul about it, I, I just got this little warm, fuzzy feeling in my stomach because it's so non-cynical. They're watching a nice TV show, a reality show where people are generally nice. They're not getting loaded. They're not having sex with each other and trying to claw their each respective uh, each other's eyes out or anything like that. It's nice. So go Japan to, for producing something that's not cynical or anything. And they haven't uh, tried to up the ante like this season. Crap gets real or anything. No, <laughs> we're, we're all we'll be nice to each other. It's all nice. It's sunny and everything's bright. Right. No, no, the only upgrade on that on that show is we've got a better house or, oh, look, we've moved to another city. Not no, these people are meaner this season or the, the, the fireworks are going to be, you know, not that nothing like that. So, uh, so that's a good barometer to, uh, if you follow Kevin on social media. If he's updating his website, he's working. And if he isn't, he's also working. And hopefully <laughs> you'll, you'll stay whole uh, mentally and physically throughout the, this whole ordeal of uh, being busy. Uh, but at any rate, uh, some very brief contact information for the rest of the network. And this is Podcast on Fire on the Podcast on Fire network. Discussions of mostly uh, vintage uh, Hong Kong cinema, but sometimes some dips into new movies as well. Hong Kong mainland uh, China related. And we are located, as I said, on podcastonfire.com. We've got plenty of other shows on, for instance, Japanese cinema, Korean cinema. We talk sleazy movies. We have talked ninja movies so we do bonus episodes and plenty of other things so you can make your choice over there and if you're a first time listener thank you very much if you have listened plenty of times or a couple of times thank you very much and uh, we appreciate the support verbal or non-verbal but if you do want to share or ask us anything let us know in the following ways podcast on fire at googlemail.com is our email address join us over on social media for discussion and questions uh, click uh, the, the smoothest way to do so is to click the facebook button at the top of our website that will lead you to our page uh, but you can also search out podcast on fire network on facebook and that will lead you to our group so uh, join the fun and uh, discussion and all of that uh, the link is also available for our twitter feed to our itunes feed which you can subscribe to as well as our stitcher radio presence and i review on sogoodreviews.com a variety of hong kong and taiwanese uh, genre cinema but uh, a, a lot of varied genres in between but the main focus here is is on category free movies of the adult kind mostly i Review these uh, kooky uh, ninja movies, uh, sometimes starring Richard Harrison, and some kooky 
Taiwanese movies uh, often featuring uh, a lot of childish childish humor but uh, I'm, I'm sometimes afraid i'm running out of the type of taiwanese cinema i like so i'm like do i have to watch uh, the art films but uh, I'm, I'm not yet I'm, I'm not there yet so um, you, you can look up taiwanese posters for these hopping vampire movies or variations of things that started in hong kong and you you'll, you'll be busy for a fair amount of time Watching those and the fantasy tinted uh, movies, um, it's a little bit of a hidden treasure in Taiwan that uh, unfortunately doesn't get enough recognition. But um, the, the the positive thing is though with Taiwan, and I'm, I'm sure you picked up on this, Kevin, that the, the what is it the, the Taipei Film Archive or the Taiwan Film Archive? They are actively restoring more and more things and are also sending out movies to tour the world um, and uh, I, I remember reading of this uh, program that really f- focused on uh, uh, I mean I don't have the links in front of me but they were they were Taiwanese cinema f- uh, featuring a different dialect right they, they, this very uh, sparse period where this type of uh, Mandarin cinema thrived uh, and they, they sent out uh, movies like that on tour and uh, highlighted the context of that and uh, now those prints are obviously watchable because they've been remastered and uh, they they can be screened so in taiwan things are happening and if you're a keen itunes user you can type in some stuff on there you you'll you'll see plenty of uh, you know bridget lynn movies and war movies and things like that that are available in full hd on us itunes uh, mainly from a one company in taiwan central motion pictures or something like that that are really bringing out their catalog of movies and putting it on not on disc but on us itunes uh, and uh, there's plenty of uh, cool stuff there that's now viewable for the first time probably before they were only available in cropped and non-subtitled uh, versions so there's things happening in Taiwan, and uh, one hopes that maybe they'll reach these uh, these more, you know, genre-tinted movies, the Hopping Vampire movies, and the, the fantasy movies, and give them a facelift. But um, uh, at the moment, uh, I, I have the sources that I have, and I'm quite happy, though. So we'll see. But at any rate, uh, that's, I think, uh, that's uh, all our plugs uh, for now. So we're going to take a musical break, and uh, after that, we'll be back to discuss the, I believe, Lunar New Year smash hit uh, from 1996 starring Stephen Chow and that is Forbidden City Cop so uh, sit tight and we'll be right back And welcome back in the first movie up for review. This episode is Forbidden City Cop from 1996 and plot from the Love HK film review of the film. This sort of sequel to From Beijing with Love finds Stephen Chow as a super spy in ancient China. As Ling Ling Fat, uh, not 007 but 008, Chow must protect the emperor, played by Chiang Tatming, from evil invaders from the Gum province. First, they try, try to do the emperor... In uh, by kidnapping him and stuffing him in an ET suit. Yep, 
that's my note. Yep. Ling <laughs> uh, Ling Fat arrives to save the day with help from some of his fancy inventions, though. Then the dastardly gum guys change tactics. They present Gum Cho, played by Common Lee, the most gorgeous prostitute in China, to attempt a seduction of the emperor. That's it. So uh, let's, uh, let's throw out some uh, brief opinions, uh, first of all, of uh, Forbidden City Cop. So let's start with you, Kevin. Uh, in short, uh, what, what do you think of uh, Forbidden City Cop? And uh, you've seen it once or twice before. I, I think I saw it when I when it first came out, because I was in the States. Uh, same for the film we're about to talk later, uh, which is uh, Anna the King. I saw both those in the States. Uh, of course, at a fairly young age. I think it was 1990. The film came out in 1997, was it? Uh, 96. Uh, Luna, uh, Luna, Luna New Year, 1996. Luna New Year, 96. So I was like 12 years, not even 12 years old. So I'm very young, of course. And uh, so I haven't seen it in about at least a good decade or two. Um, so it's it, I was watching it practically like a new film. It's very interesting. But yeah, no, I, I really liked it. I mean, I remembered it as sort of a, a very a, a very uh, light sort of light entry to Stephen Chow's uh, filmography. It's not that worth remembering. It's not very memorable. It's probably not great. But then now watching it and knowing that he, it was one of his first um, directorial efforts, it's clear you can see the bits that where the the, the the Stephen Chow, the director, shines through, how it's not the typical sort of Lunar New Year comedy. That is more thoughtful than that. It it's more um, has a more weirder style than than Stephen Chow's usual films, and I find that very fascinating. And, and yeah, it's just a very funny film, especially after the really terrible crop of uh, Lunar New Year films. As you might have heard on the show, I was not very uh, not very nice to this year's Lunar New Year films, uh, and and you know. For good reason. So, so to see that film from twenty years ago, um, being this very light-hearted effort, being this sort of a not particularly remarkable entry in Stephen Chow's filmography, and then watching the Lunar New Year movies this year, where you see people trying too hard, really, mm-hmm. it's a very interesting contrast. And still, Stephen Chow's film is much, much success, much more successful because I said on the show, a Lunar New Year movie. All they need to do is make you laugh. That's pretty much it. To get the Hong Kong audience on your side, just make them laugh during Chinese New Year, and they will come back to your film again and again and again, just like Oswald Enswell and all those classic Lunar New Year films that people keep going back to. It's interesting. And, of course, Forbidden City Cop you know, very much succeeds at that. And I, I really like this movie. Now I'm watching it again 20 years later. It, it, it is funny. And yet, uh, as you said, it's uh, it doesn't try to hugely forward his voice and his comedy tactics uh, but it certainly doesn't slot into the uh, quickly shot and conceived and just get it out of Lunar New Year because uh, obviously being a period movie it requires a little bit more uh, technical design and all of that but it is very funny sometimes some some inspired humor sometimes it's uh, it's simply marvelously entertaining rather than uh, laugh out loud funny and it also has a strong point in the central relationship between Stephen Chow and his uh, wife played by um, uh, Karina Lau which is I think uh, one of this the movie sort of um, it's the ace up its sleeve that this aspect was really enjoyable this is we'll get into it but this is a husband and wife sort of situation that uh, I wasn't expecting it to be that enjoyable this People get on, clearly. Uh, I just pray to God that they didn't hate each other shooting this movie because it doesn't show. So uh, we'll get into it. Uh, Connecting back a little bit to the Stephen Chow spy spoof from Beijing with Love, which was, I think, his first credited 
co-directing gig. Uh, in that movie, if I'm not mistaken, he was Ling Ling Chai or Ling Ling Cha, which yeah. is a direct translation of the, of the number, uh, 007, right? Or what is it? He, he uses different characters, so... Like it, well, the, by themselves, they don't really. It doesn't really mean anything. It's meant to sound like zero zero seven, but of course, it's not the actual Chinese characters with zero zero seven. It's actually something else. But it comes out sounding like zero zero seven. And the actually third word, the the, the tut part, is supposed to sound like seven. It actually, um, it's very complicated because we have a slang. At least back in the day, we have a slang. Uh, for the word atan, which is what we call mainlanders, it's a very derogatory slang actually, mm-hmm. and it's it's they because he the, the identity of the character, yeah, he's from the mainland mainland China, and so they gave ta ta, so the the character ta sounds like tan, right? And I think that's sort of the intentional joke or intentional uh, the intention there. He often played those mainland bumpkins as well in movies. Uh, uh, that's right. If we go back to from Beijing with Love, I think they discover him. Uh, currently working you know at a restaurant in china or whatever so uh, um but but for this movie when they upgraded to you know uh 008 is it uh, is it still uh, like some some pun in there or they, they, it's just a number uh, this time around i think the because it's a lunar year film so the the four the four um Forbidden City Cop, he, the, the Emperor has four Forbidden City Cops and they all each go by code name and the code name adds up to Gong Hei Fa Choi, yeah. which is the which is the Lunar New Year greeting, you know, Gong Hei Fa Choi. Um, so, fa, so fa, which is, you know, Ba Eight is uh, sounds like Fa, which means fortune. So, of course, Lunar New Year, you have to have lucky numbers and things like that. So it just makes sense that Stephen Chow's character would be eight, which is the most fortunate number of all numbers. Sweet. There you go. I, I, I really I like that context. Um, so, um, um, you know, you, you, you can, you know, a Western audience can pick up on the fact that he's uh, 008 or and but if you're uh, if you're an audience, local audience, you can get something more out of that. So that, that's that's good context. I always like that. And as I said, he had begun directing. Uh, clearly, he was an idea man, Stephen. And I heard, at least in connection to this movie, Forbidden City Cop, that, and maybe it was, it was uh, Vincent Koch who said this, that Stephen brought so many ideas anyway that I thought he might as well be co-director when all is said and done. So I always got the impression that that wasn't the case initially, but he was there just sort of you know, spewing out ideas and wanting to be part of the creative process anyway. Uh, do, do, have you heard anything uh, personally about that in terms of um, how the co-directing aspect went? Well, no, I haven't heard any substantiated stories about it, but essentially you could see that that uh, uh, all the films that he did in the 90s, it was so much him in it. There's so much him in it that you would know that he's definitely improvising a lot of these or that a lot of these are, are thought of by him. A lot of these were in the script that that he is the man who is behind the characters that he plays. Not not in real life, but he's the one who has the idea about the characters that he play. And that his performance style is so solidified or so there, so out there that it must be him coming up with these sort of stuff. It couldn't be anyone else. He's sort of broad sticking his tongue out and uh, being loud and his very quiet troll and quirky style it's definitely seems like it comes more from him rather than you know a Wong Jing saying to him once upon a time that that's funny you should do that uh, you know it, it seems more like Stephen Chow is, is crafting his cr- screen persona and putting himself on the creative path um, towards uh, directing more and more he continued to be co-direct adventures up until Shaolin Soccer, I think, is the one where he got sole credit, but you still got um, 
a very distinct credit of you know from Lilik Chi for instance who's in this that it almost suggests that it might be even Kung Fu Hustle where he's all alone in the directing chair so it was always a, he, he was always collaborating up until the new millennium essentially which is um, certainly not a bad thing when you're also acting to, to have support that way I, I as a Westerner, I, I always fear when I watch a Steve Chow movie that I'll be totally out of the loop. But I'll, I'm, I've always come back to the fact that, yes, there's clearly stuff that's not, you know, even Kevin wouldn't be able to translate it properly because, the, <laughs> the, you know, it, it's just uh, it, it's just impossible sometimes, you know. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm glad that the majority of the movies I watch, even if I don't have the full cu- cultural context, even that there, there's always the physical slapstick nature and enough of clear coherent dialogue that isn't about making uh, local puns or strictly being Cantonese comedy I'm always glad that all of that came through and it started to become, I think anyway his movie started to become more universal during the latter half of the 90s and moving towards Kung Fu Hustle versus the former half of the 90s. Uh, so we, we, when you watch Forbidden City Cop, uh, listening to it and reading uh, reading the subtitles, do can you sense that he's focusing solely on the local audiences? Or is, there a, is he reaching out, do you think, to, uh, to an international audience with, with the physical humor at the very least? Oh, man. You know, when I watch Chinese movies these days, I, I actually also look at the English subtitles on, on it just to, you know... Wrong, 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 wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Like a professional habit, you know, sometimes I pick up things like, oh, I should translate that way or something like that. But then when I was watching English subtitles for this one, I was like, oh, I wish I could have done a whole new draft of this film. Like so many jokes that get lost in the, in the translation, like at least the verbal ones. Do they just skip it or it's just impossible? Uh, no, I, I wish I could have done a run on it. Like I wish I got to do a draft of it because um, it's just like, oh, this could have been because it's, it's very colloquial and all you need to do is just make it colloquial with that meaning and actually it works yes it sounds it may be the cantonese nuance might be might not be able to carry in english but the thing is you just have to carry the colloquialism into english and then it'll work it actually makes more sense than you think at the same time though if you're familiar with uh, the tropes of the swordplay movie in the movie in the movies or on tv stuff like in the opening where these um sword masters are meeting on the rooftops and introducing themselves and they're gonna have a big fight all of that should be recognizable tropes to a degree to international audiences uh, and then stephen chow comes in and breaks up the party obviously and, right. uh, and the joke is that these swordsmen are not suave and handsome they are <laughs> per definition ugly <laughs> i think that's a, an example of if you're familiar with genre hong kong cinema you can get a lot out of that because i i really dig that stephen chow as a character you know he's an agent and he's a protector of the emperor and he's also a police officer so he's policing the the jang hu if you will the martial world and he's also laughing at the uh, absurdity of it because uh, these characters exist in the martial world as well they're not pretty they might have the skill and the, the the tone established here that the martial world is policed, I think, is hysterical without it being a physical gag. So he's a, he he wants to bring them in for loitering and illegal gathering, you know, because that, that's punishable. And such an opening gag, I think, sets uh, Westerners uh, into a, like a good place. Like this is approachable, this is understandable, but clearly also this is. Uh, 
referencing a major tradition uh, you know in um, in storytelling and historic content whether in tv or, or movies i think when he gets that tone right and that gag right as he laughs at the, the silliness of, of this i think the movie is uh, well on its way uh, to becoming entertaining just by this uh, section alone you know what i mean well, yeah, yeah. It pretty much tells you that opening tells you what kind of movie this is going to be, and it is what this movie is, which is so very not very. I wouldn't say subversive, but it's definitely a spoof of 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 um of recognizable tropes in that genre, and and he does plenty of it. You know, you have a a a a forbidden city bodyguard who can't fight. Who he is like essentially. If you watch James Bond movie, this is if um if James Bond isn't the hero, but rather is Q. If Q is the hero, then this is what this movie is, and that's already subversing the, the the spy movie trope. And of course, you got the the thing about wuxia films, and not you don't, you don't really have to know martial arts to to be able to beat your enemies and things like that. Uh, and of course, it works in this being a new to new year movie. Of course, it works in current events of the time, and I can talk a bit more about that later. But uh, this is something that I didn't pick up at the time because I was. It was just before the internet, so I wasn't really aware of so much things that were happening in Hong Kong. I didn't realize that there was a certain thing that was actually making fun of a current event in Hong Kong. I didn't know that until now watching it now. Which is a risk I think you take uh, that when you make uh, fun of or reference uh, current cultural context. Uh, Wong Jing loved to do that and almost fill his entire movies with stuff that happened last week. And then when you watch it next week or two years later, you're just, what? that happen you know it would be like if a movie made a parody came out of uh, what donald trump did last week today and then in two weeks that movie would be so old because we've moved on and there's been stuff happening since you know so uh, <laughs> and, and i never got the impression that stephen chow was part of movies that structured themselves like that thoroughly be uh, having tons of current cultural context so i think if anything they it seemed that they mixed those instances i mean james bond is never a current cultural context it's always out there in 1996 i don't think we had a movie out goldeneye was the year before tomorrow never dies the year after so this is a in-between year for james bond so it's not like forbidden city cop uh, with its james bond obviously opening credits uh, parody is um, hip in that regard but you, you can always you can always parody james bond and when it gets the age-old gags right i never complain because it doesn't get old when it's simply funny what happens for instance during that opening credits when he you know the, the lady in the silhouette when <laughs> when he sticks out his tongue and like licks her that's <laughs> that's both you know wonderfully bizarre and clever at the same time it isn't the latest gag in the world either so steven gets by with uh, that and then some by uh, echoing what's worked throughout the decades and and funny is funny when you when you uh, come down to it but no one expects uh, the james bond of it all to start uh, licking the little girls in silhouettes you know <laughs> 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 that that is still one of my favorite opening sequence I think ever in a Hong Kong film. Also, it features for you know we we got an action director here that that is asked to do some of the times uh, you know fast cut wire enhanced action, but for slight comedic purposes, and that also works because it needs to be technically executed like a nineties action scene and nineties action atmosphere featuring wires and fast cuts and techniques that that needs to be there that needs to be in feel what you've seen in movies but then you got a twist uh, for instance when they demonstrate all the forbidden city cop 
cops uh, demonstrate their skills. That is all straight out of another action movie. And then the joke obviously is, and we won't list all the jokes, but then the joke obviously is that the last forbidden city cop, the god, he uh, takes care of himself. He doesn't want to get hurt unnecessarily. Which is my favorite <laughs> gag in the movie when Stephen Chow doesn't do any flips, it doesn't do any advanced wire stuff. He just casually rolls on the floor. <laughs> Better not get hurt here. And the brilliant thing there is, Kevin, that him and uh, director Vincent Cock they stop all noises in the movie. Music stops, <laughs> chatter stops, and we're just left with the foley of Stephen Chow slowly rolling on the floor. <laughs> and those dry moments, those droll moments, those quirky moments of humor is what gets to me rather than the intense loud gags, you know? Well, it's interesting because the thing about Stephen Chow movies, that I think since going all the way back, because, you know, Hong Kong has a, has a tradition of not shooting in sync sound. Their tradition is usually to do the, the, the dialogue later in a studio. But the thing is, Ever since I think Ghost May, perhaps going all the way back to uh, Fight Back to School, Stephen Chow films almost always have to be in sync sound. Yep, it uh, it came and went a little bit. Uh, Fight Back to School Two was the first sync sound Stephen Chow movie I saw. And then some might have been dubbed, but this one indeed seems mostly in sync sound, if not all. Yeah, them. this one's mostly sync sound. I think also Enzo is also sync sound. Right. Um, and yeah, so you realize that whoa, okay, a lot of Stephen Chow, we have to get that authentic uh, uh on the set uh improvisation that tone there in order to make a, a Stephen Chow movie work and and what you're talking about the play with sound and playing with the music and I think that's how it helps you know having that live on the set the the awkwardness of that noise really carries that that joke when it comes to the interaction between husband and wife which is rather what uh, what Ling Ling Fat wants to do he, he wants to um, enjoy home life and work on his uh, inventions, which seem fairly sound. They seem to work, rather than being these crazy inventions that do not work. I love the dad in Gremlin, <laughs> Gremlins, right, who just made crappy inventions. Uh, the bathroom buddy from Gremlins that just spewed like shaving cream all over the place and never worked. I'm dating myself like a Gremlins kids. Remember that one? <laughs> How do you think the interaction between Stephen Chow and Karina Lau works? Speaking again of chemistry but also chemistry and sync sound. No, that's my favorite part of the film. Like, just like for you, is my favorite part of the film. And I think um, that's the sweetest, one of the sweetest relationships Stephen Chow's ever put on film. Uh, I think in history of his film, because he has a tendency to to abuse his female leads. I mean, the characters, not the not the actual actors. Um, he has a tendency to to torture those characters in many ways. You see Mermaid, or if you watch even up to Mermaid, or even um, uh, Journey to the West. Uh, and going all the way back um, to you know things like um, the one where he plays the the, the the judge, hail hail the judge probably hail the judge. Most of his films, they he likes to put his um, lead lead female character through the gauntlet. But here, I think this is one of the sweetest thing I've ever seen Stephen Chow do the, that relationship. It really is about uh, they're they're clearly been married, but they're still having a good time with each other there it's almost like it's mildly improvised what they're doing because they're 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 chasing each other and they're tickling each other and they're they're having a good time as husband and wife rather than a stale time as husband and wife like and she is supportive like you read about and it's not this 
sugary, sweet sort of, I'll support my husband, but there is something that Vincent Cock and Stephen Chow tap into where this becomes uh, real. And, and she she's a great actress, obviously, make, coming through with this too, Karina Lau, but there's no doubt in a way that her support is unmatched and she's happy to do it and therefore they're happy together and when inventions work you know in the daily chores and all of that that uh, is uh, joyous for them and to see them chase each other around the bedroom it's not it's not as lame as that sounds it's one of those (laughs) like oh look at that that's awesome characters uh, getting on and actors clearly having a, a good chemistry going on too yeah, yeah, even the arguments, right? The so-called arguments, you know, where Karina, you know, oh, I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave. And then she walks out. Steven, and then after five seconds, Stephen Chow stands up and goes outside and picks her up from under the table. I knew you'd be hiding there. Like, <laughs> that, was just, that was great. Uh, I just want to single out a little bit, uh, a bit that I liked. Uh, he, uh, he sees uh, various... Uh, patience and things like that and uh, at one point is it Tats Lau that's uh, the cross-dressing uh, Forbidden City Cop um, that, he, uh, that he meets uh, and he sees him uh, there's a curtain between them and I like when Stephen does the almost under the breath type of dialogue with uh, his uh, co uh, uh, his co-actors and he says to I think it's Tatslau anyway. Uh, he says to him, like, you don't need to dress as a woman and conceal your voice, right? <laughs> you know, it's almost like he takes him to the side. And, uh, like, we aren't supposed to hear that anyway. I-, I can't explain it, but I kind of like that he doesn't draw attention to it. Like, he doesn't say, like, wow, look at you. You're all dressed up like a woman and concealing your voice. You don't need to do that. It's rather like, you don't need to do that, dude. Like, just... Just don't <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's almost, yeah, it's almost like, yo, man, you're embarrassing me. Like, don't do this. Like, stop doing this. Like, I know, I like that. Yeah. One of the most irresistible things of Stephen Chow in the 90s, especially also when he played um, curious characters, is uh, when he, he smiles and he lights up and he's curious about his environment and he likes being in an environment. When he goes to the sort of conference with the doctors uh, and he's listening in, listening in on the various meetings and uh, uh, and the conversations i find that adorable when he just hey i'm here without like taking up space or anything he's not trying to be the 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 number one in the room or anything and in that sequence kevin i i, I wanted to say that it's not always steeped in gags what we see in forbidden city cop and especially in that mm. whole sequence with the uh, the conference essentially but it's about, oh, the, talk about the the alien dissection well, well, really, before the alien dissection, but that, that's a good point, too. But the back-and-forth banter between all characters, it isn't about necessarily, to me anyway, uh, spewing gags, verbal gags. It's about interaction and an energy to the interaction. And yes, when the doctors are prepping to examine the alien, they're all having that back-and-forth as well. And I think that's when the movie hits its most confident stride. Because it's uh, you have that gag, the centerpiece gag of the alien. Which uh, is what it is. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of bizarre, <laughs> and it, it's all—it's all talk, man. It's all back and forth dialogue, and it's very funny what what the kind of ideas they have in terms of where they're gonna look and where they're gonna cut first or whatever. But it's sometimes it seems to me that they didn't write any guys. They just thought we we gotta make this dialogue funny between each other. We gotta gotta have a tone and energy between each other, and that's our intent here. And 
so sometimes I single out those things, Kevin, that those things are very confident and those things are very uh, sometimes the most memorable things in a movie when, uh, when, when, they, when it's snappy back and forth. Well, you know, the entire alien dissection idea is actually that's the current event I was talking about because it was a play because um, Asian television at that point, I think the year before that, they had they attained or they bought a program about alien autopsy. Right, right, right. And it was a huge deal. It was like I think it was an Amer- it was an American show or something like that. And they're they were making a huge, huge deal out of it about how we're going to show this alien autopsy. And then as they did in the film. They dragged it out as long as they could. I think they, they did like a whole week long special, like one special a night <laughs> just to before. And then people waited like four nights and it turns out it looked fake and rubbery and people were so angry. And that's why that's what the film was making fun of. Yeah, this this thing, this is the current event that I'm talking about, this pop culture essentially phenomenon, this event that was such a big deal and turned out to be a, a total, um, total dud. Yeah, I think I remember at the time to uh, that that came out i mean th- this is before the internet where everybody were you know breaking this down in hd and uh you know uh, call- calling you know it a hoax and uh all of that because i also remember at the time the x-files did a, a, a one of their funny episodes the x-files d- did a parody of this where where someone was shooting scully and Mulder, quote-unquote examining an alien and that leaked, or and someone thought that was real, right? But in but in fact, it was all uh, it was all a dud, uh, so to say. So I think uh, that that fits the timeline too. That uh, we had a little global peak in terms of oh my god, an actual alien <laughs> alien alien video and uh, uh, all of that, and, and then obviously that uh, twist of uh, twist of um, who's in the alien outfit, and yeah, it's it, it all has an entertaining flow. I think it never it never dips for me. And Vincent Cock, he might not have tons of plot developments. I don't think there's a lot to to the plot in terms of content. He has an, he has enough. Develop, uh, developments because short by hour one we get commonly introduced and the second sort of wave of trying to get to the emperor and i think all of it is it, it's it's enough it's enough stuff in here it's not overstuffed with uh, twists and turns and uh, things that make a a period movie and a sword play movie incoherent but rather it's enough it's enough here that it's spaced out in a coherent way and therefore audiences will both have fun and sort of get where 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 the plot is going and all of that so i don't i don't think there's any sort of weaknesses in that uh, regard so you you should point towards the fact that it's directed well enough you know as a story as well or, or what do you think well yeah no it's very well directed i think like i said there was some very off things that you could tell that wasn't just a typical um uh, vincent cook film it, it's you have that very weird vibe in the uh there's a dinner scene if you remember where carmen lee shows up in the middle of dinner and it was a dinner with uh karina lao and karina lao's parents and the way the framing and the way the pacing of that scene is very odd and of course you got the whole alien dissection scene and things like that i think you could tell that that's the little stephen chow stephen chow touch you know, it's because Vincent Cook, if you watch his filmography, you know he can't be capable of this sort of stuff, this sort of directing. He's a consistently mediocre director, let's face it. <laughs> he is as good as the material. I mean, he, I mean, he did gorgeous, but I don't know if gorgeous has survived necessarily super well, but certainly, uh, you know, it's a Jackie Chan movie, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, again, is a very, is at the most interesting, at the most, you know, pretty mediocre Jackie Chan movie, again um so so that's that's it but um you you can tell that some of these little interesting little 
bits and pieces. You know, those are like Stephen Chow's ideas and things like that. And I think that that whole dinner dinner scene is one of those, and and the way um some of the the just say the weirder scenes, you could kind of feel like okay, uh, Stephen Chow putting his hand on there. The, the the dinner scene in particular is great because he's uh, you know he's been sent in to sort of uh, to commonly and he's in transpire to some degree and he's trying to hide that from his wife and that that dinner scene just gets from worse to worse for him and when Carmen Lee comes into the room you can see Stephen Chow on his face like no <laughs> and, he, and he does a dolly in on himself and all of that so shit and even the English subs uh, as as flawed as they might be they, they do try to explain some of the puns and the wordplay as Karina Lau faces off with Carmen Lee but um which rarely happened. They put some things in parentheses in terms of this Chinese saying sounds a bit like. And they have a little verbal back and forth for her and Karina Lau. So at least they, they try to help us out ever so slightly. So um, I don't have any other notes because it is a fast-moving film under 90 minutes and they, we got a couple of three, four beats in terms of getting the plot from beginning to end. And that's pretty much, uh, pretty much it. Some weirdness in there. But I won't spoil it all, but I, I think my maybe second favorite sequence is the out-of-place award sequence that even <laughs> even the character played by Lilik Chi, who has massive nose hair, haha, and it's kind of his haha, uh, even the award sequence after it's done, his character says, why on earth did we do that? <laughs> Essentially, like, what is this sidetrack about? <laughs> so, so they even caught, they even sort of do some meta thing, I guess, criticizing themselves or others for not getting on with it and sidetracking into silliness. But that sidetracking into silliness, i.e., the award sequence, which is shot like it's all of a sudden on TV with split screen and reactions to whoever gets the award and all of that, I think it's hysterical. Stephen Chow at one point. <laughs> You know, they do a freeze frame with him with his arms up in the air and with his surprise oh, yeah. look. When he loses, yeah. <laughs> and that is, and you know what? That's, that isn't him trying to come up with a new gag. That is a universal old gag, but it needs to work. It needs to, you, you gotta be funny to make it work. And he is funny, he can make it work. And I, I couldn't make it work. I couldn't stretch my hands up in the air and do a silly face, a surprise face. I, that wouldn't be funny, but he has that skill in him to just sort of make it work. I can't say it any other way. You know, you can't you can't say in, it in any other scholarly way. You just have to make it funny. Well, I, it especially worked because we know by that point that Stephen Chow had been nominated for Best Actor multiple times and still hadn't won <laughs> the Hong Kong Film Awards. Yeah, they, they, they were kind of riffing on something. Uh, yeah. It, it felt like it that they were um, referencing something, but uh, I, I think the most genius part is the fact that Lilik Chi calls everybody on it. Like, how the, the, the subtitles seem a little bit sloppy. They say like, "How can you present this award? What a mess!" But uh, <laughs> obviously, we, we get it. So I think that's uh, uh, that's fun, and it doesn't stall the movie either, right? Because it isn't ten minutes of um, of shtick, you know. I so I I'll conclude my notes here. Uh, it's uh, it's 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 very fun. Is it his best? I don't know, but it's 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 pretty great. It's pretty fun. It, the, even if it's not funny, laugh out loud funny in certain sections, it's widely entertaining because they're all uh, there to to perform and execute. It doesn't feel like a phoned in type of Lunar New Year production or anything. Uh, you know, it's uh, it knows what it's got to do. And it does it well. And and even if it had not come out in, during the Lunar New Year, I think uh, this would be 
an acceptable comedy from Stephen Chow, don't you think? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that film came before that sort of slump between uh, Oswald Oswald in 97 up to Shaolin Soccer, where he was just firing blanks, you know, he just really wasn't sort of into it, or he was kind of, kind of, um, or even King of Comedy was, that was his film, but even then it was sort of like he was trying to do something else out of the, out of the ordinary. Yeah. Um, so I think Forbidden City Cop, God of Cookery that year, I mean, that was really towards the end of... Oh, crap, that was the same year. I know, yeah. God of Cookery, I watched sort of, I think it was the first movie after Shaolin Soccer, and I don't think I was ready for the weirdness of God of Cookery, <laughs> because it's out there at points. Uh, I didn't know why that actress looked like she did, and some stuff just seemed out there and weird. I think when I go back to it now, I'm sort of like, yeah, that's, this is Hong Kong cinema. Yeah, no, God of Cookery is my top three, I think, top three Stephen Chow movies ever, I think, of all time. Uh, just a really great, that was really fun, and that was a huge year for him, right? I mean, February, he had Forbidden City Cop, and by December, he had God of Cookery, but even before that, in August, the year before that, he had Million Dollar Man. So this is still sort of the time when Stephen Chow is exhausting himself, making two, three movies a year, mm-hmm. um, and considering how much creativity and how much work he puts into it, it's amazing he could still make movies in that type of uh, that type of pace. Uh, but then, of course, you know, after God of Cookery, then you had that period when you had, you know, Oswald Enzo in 97, Lawyer, Lawyer, and um, The Lucky Guy, and then what Tricky Master. And yeah, that, those were like the movies that he wasn't involved with. He was not really putting his heart into it. Uh, the one they did was God of, God of Comedy. And even that was like him trying to do something different. And that was because, you know, yeah, that was a very interesting attempt, but it was not the Stephen Chow that everyone knew. It still confuses, I think, most viewers uh, the tone of King of Comedy because, especially by the yeah. end, we I, I still don't know if that was meant to be taken seriously. But 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 I am amused by the fact that King of Comedy has the best blatant, willingly blatant use of product placement <laughs> because the, the 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 Pringles they just chowing down on those Pringles like nom 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 nom. <laughs> Uh, so I'll, I'll uh, I have a run out of notes. Uh, anything else you want to say about Forbidden City Cop? Well, watching this film again makes me because we know we know that later on Stephen Chow became this big special effects sort of wizard wizard director, right? With um, uh, Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hasso and of course Journey to the West. So it's interesting to see him still doing that kind of low tech effects in the film, and it looks more real than anything in 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 Kung Fu Hasso. To be honest, it looks better than anything in Kung Fu. So, you know, when you have to do wire and you have to use creativity to make your effects look convincing, it looks more convincing. Maybe that's just my thing. Maybe I'm old fashioned kind no, of. No, 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 I fair agree. I mean, that's that's what action sort of looked and felt like of the time. Yes, it's mildly quick cuts. Uh, so they, they're not trying to do floaty and elegant action or anything. But uh, that's what you call on uh, an action director of this time to to do they really knew how to execute this kind of this kind of mostly physical uh, physical showcase because it simply we we, we talked about this uh, me and Paul when watching uh, Fong Sayok how small each each edit is like how little they do per shot to add up to a massive sequence but usually a, a massive physical sequence and some of that rings true here as well. Like they, they can't do the, this for more than two, three seconds. Then they have to, you know, extend it through another edit, another edit. But it's still still there, has enough flow and is a good fun. And I mean, towards the end, it turns a bit freaky as, uh, you know, powers are displayed and uh, the villain is falling apart. And everybody goes, yeah, 
<laughs> when that happens. So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine. If you remember, there's this gag where um, the villain hits someone and it only hurts the people behind him. I can I mean, well, first of all, that that feels like that feels like a, a Stephen Chow gag, especially when when Lo Kyung goes up and go hit me, hit me, you know, I won't get hurt. <laughs> and then he gets hurt anyway. Um, but then you know, I I'm scared to think what would happen with today's special effects, how that how that sequence would look like. And by looking at it, ninety six, it looked totally convincing to me. Fine, yeah, put a squib on and then and then blow up everyone's chest. It looks great. Absolutely. But then, imagine doing it with special effects and how how senselessly elaborate it would look with special effects. I just I'm scared to think about it. Yeah, he, he got the cartoony tone right for you know the movies like Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle mixing you know elaborate special effects but it was not always in movies like Journey to the West the first one for me where what all of that worked it um it, it was a little bit too big of a showcase um, for for sometimes the same type of humor uh not a bad film but I, I just felt like tools are there but you might want to reduce uh, the usage of them as well and uh I think a little bit about your roots but uh, but there it is. It's still uh, still fairly funny, even though he's not acting himself anymore. Like, my, one of my main pleasures uh, was uh, seeing him in Choi Hike for the promo campaign of uh, Journey to the West Two. Like Stephen Chow, <laughs> I want the Stephen Chow and Choi Hike movie, or at least more web shorts of Stephen Chow <laughs> and Choi Hike yeah, in the office. That would be that would make my year because both of them are funny together. Well, I, I wanted a Journey to the West movie with no special effects. I wish they were for real. <laughs> well, we'll uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, Forbidden City Cop is uh, is uh, there in the timeline and to be appreciated. And uh, availability is so and so. I mean, it's a Maya title that they did twice for DVD, with the second being a remastered version. It features a filmmaker commentary with I think Vin- I heard this because it's not subtitled uh, with Vincent Cock and I think uh, his. Um, Presumably, his friend Edmund Pang joined in on the track as well, maybe to act as interviewer and moderator. But but I can't talk of the quality of the um, of the commentary track on the DVD because there are no English subtitles for uh, this uh, particular supplemental feature. But uh, that, that was the DVD. Uh, Cam and Ronson have also put out a Hong Kong Blu-ray. I heard it was decent quality, but no no edition is actually listed as in stock currently. But hopefully that is just temporary, and at least the Blu-ray will um, be available uh, in, on online shops and so forth, or available used for reasonable prices. Um, uh, so uh, that is uh, that is it. So Forbidden City Cop uh, put to bed, and uh, next up after the promo break, we'll uh, fast forward to 1999 and Chai Fat's third adventure in Hollywood, mostly shot in uh, in in Asia, though, because uh, this uh, movie wasn't an all wasn't all on stage in Hollywood they needed to go somewhere to achieve the grandeur of Anna and the King and uh, we'll talk all about that after the promo break Hey everyone, you are listening to the podcast on Fire Network, my name is Bird, and I'm Matt We are the Kaiju Transmissions podcast, so if you like giant monsters, Godzilla, Gamera Ultraman, uh, King Kong, you like Japanese sci-fi, we are the place to be and you can check us out online in several places. Isn't that right, Matt? Yeah, check us out on Twitter. Uh, our handle is KT underscore podcast. Or visit us on Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions Podcast. And you can also email us at Kaiju Transmissions Podcast at gmail.com. So if you like your monsters gigantic, angry, and rubbery, check us out. 
And welcome back in the second movie. Uh, up for review in this episode is Anna and the King from 1999. Uh, as always, uh, almost always, anyway, when I get Kevin on board here, I'd like to do an East screen, West screen pick because that's the <laughs> podcast he co-hosts so why not and it also affords me the opportunity to branch out a little bit and talk of our favorite hong kong actors or directors uh, adventures abroad and in this case it's a giant fat uh, in a hollywood movie third time around but plot and this comes from the back of the dvd english school teacher anna leon owens played by jodie foster has traveled to siam to educate the 58 children of king Mongkut, played by giant fat if she has preconceived notions of the East, the king has similar notions of the West. But amid the danger of growing political unrest, their respect for each other grows and slowly turns into something more. So let's do some short opinions. Again, we have some mild background notes as well on, on sort of the history of um, this story in book form and movie form. But uh, we'll do some brief uh, views of the movie first. So uh, what did you think of Anna and the King in short, Kevin? Well, I have two things that I didn't realize. Well, I remember now watching because, like I said earlier, I was watching it in the U.S. when uh, I was living there and I was a kid. I was growing up there, and I remember how much I was looking forward to this movie. Um, after the corrupt, I mean, every I was excited every time Chan Fat does a Hollywood film at the time. Anyway, I remember because it, it was it was what was weird because my my mother doesn't watch many movies. Um, and I used to it's usually me and my father and perhaps sometimes most of the time my older brother. But I remember the whole family was so excited about this that we went to watch a sneak preview, which is the it came before it even came out. America doesn't do sneak previews anymore. They made they made you know, where films open on Friday, they made Thursday night sneak previews. But back then they were still doing sneak previews the week or two weeks before the film comes out, once in a while. And and we went to watch a sneak preview of it. That's how excited we were about this. <laughs> Um, so I remember that, and two, I didn't remember that it was 148 minutes long. Yep. Jesus, two and a half hours. My God, that was a really long movie. Revisit so many. I don't remember much of it, but the thing is, I remember it was only okay, and I still feel the same way. Like it's all right. Like actually, the the pacing is fairly good for a film that's this long. Uh, it's very classical. And and it doesn't take it doesn't rush through anything. It really takes its time, but it's not slow to me. I didn't think it was slow. I mean, I I've seen reviews that say that it, it, it's boring, but I don't think it's a slow film. I think it gets through what it needs to do in a fairly entertaining manner, in that you don't feel like it's two and a half hours long. And Charlie, in fact, is is great in the film, but there's these weird cultural things i didn't pick up at the time you know at the end the british in many ways saved the day and and it's funny how um how because it was a maybe because it was chan fat lead because or maybe because it was an asian male lead of course the idea is oh because you know at the time they don't do that kind of stuff they're like you were saying in the the, the synopsis that their bond turns into something more but you're like does it but does it though? It's a little bit uh, ambiguous. Uh, in, in, yeah. In the, uh, but you know, I, I kind of agree, even though I'm not smart enough to pick up on sort of the cultural context. But I, I, I like the movie as it's the least obvious giant fat vehicle up to this point. With the replacement killers, they were doing the killer in America. Understandable, because mm-hmm. his action persona was globally known. He wasn't known for an autumn's tale in the mainstream area of film or anything. He wasn't known for the fun to luck in the tycoon in the general audience's minds, uh, you know. So clearly they were doing that for that sake. Corruptor, okay, let's bring in some um, some material for the guy. Let, let him talk, let him use his charisma, and uh, get some action in there as well, some very hard and violent action. And it's a little bit of an underrated movie still. And I like that this is just 
strips away everything you uh, an american like, like an american audience uh, would think like oh that guy in the two action movies and then there's this movie which just relies on him the actor and they wanted you know to use less of the hong kong action persona as the impact and more of the actor as the impact and uh, it's uh, it's okay it's okay it's quite an old-fashioned uh, uh, romance in style a possible romance uh, but an old-fashioned epic in style not too demanding uh, because the political conflict and that plot uh, it's not pulse pounding or anything but what i take away from it uh, are the performances and i think the chemistry between jodie foster and chai fat carries this into pleasing territory i think i w- one of my the strong points is to see them verbally sort of face off in a couple of sequ- sequences i think that's rather delightful and uh, he's great. He's great. And uh, considering what they had to had to go through performance wise, um, he's even greater. But uh, we'll get to that language wise too. But uh, to share some mild background, I pulled off the internet. Um, this is partially based on fact, yet not uh, because uh, Anna Leon Owens, as played by Jodie Foster, she was a real woman, an Indian-born English travel writer, educator, and social activist, according to Wikipedia. She became well-known with the publication of her memoirs, beginning with the English governess at the Siamese court, published in 1870, which chronicled her experience in Siam, which is now Thailand, uh, as a teacher to the children of the Siamese king, uh, Mongkut. This and other works are uh, you know, uh, Anami King and other works of fictionalized accounts of all this, including the novel that Margaret Landon wrote called Anami King of Siam from 1944, which was then adapted into a 1946 movie of the same name. And uh, it, it stirred some controversy, especially in Thailand, it stirred up some controversy, especially in Thailand, because they, they, they found this depiction overall, uh, you know, offensive and not truthful and all of that and they they wanted to provide a counterpoint to all of this from a thai perspective so thai authors uh, actually sent accounts from their side that was then the basis for an english biography called the monkut uh, called monkut the king of siam so they, they got a book out there with some counterpoints to this story the margaret landon story but what happened in terms of movies furthermore it was famously adapted into a stage musical and also a movie in 1956 uh, based on that stage musical called the king and i starring yule brunner as the king and uh, i believe he won an academy award for that performance in that movie and uh, because of the depiction of the king as a, a quote um, I pulled this off the internet as, as well as a quote polka dancing despot and the romantic connection between Anna and the king the, the movie was considered disrespectful and banned by the Thai government because of the content such as that and the depiction such as that and as for the reaction of the Chai and Fat movie then in Thailand it wasn't good either uh, one critic noted that uh, King Monkut is now depicted as a cowboy and uh, enough content remained disrespectful, inaccurate, and questionable for the movie to be banned by censors in Thailand. Uh, they did try to get permission to film in Thailand and even uh, did some script revisions and tried to get the government to approve uh, approve that. But they said no, and a lot of the filming took place in Malaysia, as well as on a big, big, big... Oh, um, at the time, anyway, they say it was the biggest soundstage uh, or, or biggest set ever built for a Hollywood movie. Um, the, the palace and uh, all the surrounding areas of the palace. The domestic gross of Anna and the King uh, in the US was about $40 million, um, but the foreign uh, gross was about 80 So on a $90 million budget, the movie is quoted to 
have been a modest success when, when tallying up those uh, two US and uh, foreign growths. It was certainly the biggest US hit that Xiao had had at the time, but uh, US audiences probably went to see more US audiences probably went to see him in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and that was obviously not a a Hollywood production uh, through and through, or nor an English language production. So it's quite ironic that, um, or surprising, wonderful, that his commercial breakthrough, uh, box office-wise anyway, in the US, came through something uh, more closer to home, you know. Uh, Crouching mm-hmm. Tiger, Hidden Dragon in this case. Uh, so uh, uh, we're still in the US when uh, the craze, the Crouching Tiger craze hit. Yeah, yeah, I was there. Uh, I forgot which year. Was it like a year or two later after? Yeah, the 2000 came? or 2001, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I was, I was there. I saw the movie in the States, and I was watching after school because I was still in high school at the time. And uh, it took a while to get to, to San Francisco, which is where I was because it's not one of the – it's not one of the major cities in the U.S., so these films always take a little longer to get to San Francisco. So I remember watching that and being, you know, I don't know if I was blown away because I was kind of struggling. I was like, why don't I understand any of these Mandarin dialogue? And I, I was, it was odd to me that I had to read the English subtitles of a Chinese language film because I didn't know any Mandarin at the time. So, yeah, those were – but. Yeah, I, I was hoping for so much with with Anna and the King. You know, I was like, yeah, Charm Fat doing like you were saying. It was him doing. It was unlike anything he had done. It was really. I didn't think about it as a film that really used his acting. I just thought, well, it's him gonna do like a proper proper uh, a Hollywood film. It could be interesting. So yeah, that's it's interesting growing up as a Chinese person in the nineties, late nineties when we don't get that kind of representation on screen and when you have your biggest star of your city when you were growing up him representing you know us in hollywood that was a big deal and and i didn't think about it on terms of in such complex ways at the time but it was a big deal to me and it was unfortunately the film wasn't a big deal to anyone else except us it kind of you know in the us anyways it certainly didn't make a huge dent because I mean, his career in Hollywood, it's after this point, without even looking at filmography, I have a feeling he uh, mixed and matched his appearances back in Hong Kong, China versus the US. And I don't, I mean, what we got subsequently in the US, the likes of Bulletproof Monk, which sucked balls, and uh, <laughs> obviously Dragon Ball is not something I'm ever going to watch because I have no interest in the anime, and that movie sounded like it was a complete disaster as well. And then as the years went by, I think he did the right thing in concept anyway. I mean, never mind what you think of the movies he did in China or, and or in Hong Kong. But I think him and other filmmakers did the right thing by going back and forth and trying to you know, mix and match work that way rather than rely solely on Hollywood. I don't remember any other Chinese movie in Hollywood right now that, like, oh wow, that one should have been a bigger hit, but that is the, you know, the the gold standard of uh, his adventure in Hollywood. I mean, looking at it here, no, they, they he didn't really do many other high-profile Hollywood movies as such. Um, uh, not to, in my eyes, anyway. I mean. Uh, uh, that movie Escape from Huang Shi, I've never seen, but I know that had a mixed cost anyway. And um, an Australian director, Michelle Yeoh, was in it. But um, So I don't know if that is to be considered purely Hollywood. But I think they, they, this was it. And I don't think if, if they had not gotten audiences on board with the two movies in a big bad way, then maybe Anna and the King had no chance, as a matter of fact. But at least it got made and it, and it remained likable. 
so many years uh, so many years on because I think he is really likable and he is uh, rather impeccable I think in many ways uh, uh, but as we established it's not burdened with accuracy because this is a fictionalized account so it goes for fiction it goes for the possible romance of it all the grandeur of it all without making the royalty angle of it all the depiction of giant fat and all of that into a cartoon just because westerners are making this it doesn't seem like that and it sets up you know those plot strands that i don't think are great but they're there and it gets the movie going the 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 fear of the western influence uh, the the fear of letting western influence that in that close but giant fat king has a reason for that being that he wants he 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 fears for siam so he uh education is key to understanding the world so it sets that up fairly effectively and uh, it also gets its crowd scenes out early to make sure we know it's a big production but i don't know about you kevin but i i never thought uh, andy Tennant, the director was that sort of hardcore he, he wasn't trying to be show us that he's epic and therefore like uh, forgetting that there's a story to tell he gets those shots out but after a while i didn't think about it that the fact that this movie's big well yeah no i didn't think about it either i mean you don't think about it because it is a very small story and it is a very much character focused story and um the fact that they gave him 92 million dollars and it didn't look big enough quote-unquote big enough um i think that might have been the, his biggest crime actually because you know and you look back at andy Tennant's career you know he's known for small films he was like sweet home alabama and and ever after and hey hey fools rush in is a great rom-com <laughs> so of course he's got to do anna and the king but you're very right he his um I don't know, maybe they got him based on Ever After, but I don't know how big... Uh, it, it, Ever After is um, based on Cinderella, the Cinderella story, I believe. Right. So, uh, But I don't know if that was, quote-unquote, big or just uh, period. It wasn't a very big-budget film, and he it, and it did well considering. So that was sort of his claim to, like, okay, Fox decided to, okay, you're going to put it, bring your movie on time, and it's going to make... It's going to be one of those long, drawn-out hits. Okay, let's try it out, because Ever After didn't start out as a big movie. But it sort of slowly built up, and he thought they thought that End of the King is going to be that type of film where you put it in December, and films do especially well actually in December, New Year's period. You get a very prolonged period of films making solid money, and they thought that was going to happen putting it at that that, at that time of the year, and then it didn't happen unfortunately, and especially after spending ninety two million dollars on it. Yeah, it didn't seem he returned to this. Um scope or anything because as you said he, subsequently he had Sweet Home Alabama Hitch uh, on, on his resume and I'm sure they did business uh, decent enough business but um, it, it really when you look back on it, Andy Tennant it isn't uh, scope and epic but 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 then again you know he gets the small done quite well I think uh, small being that this is uh, character focused when all is said and done rather than spectacle focused uh, spectacle isn't bad but it isn't what i remember from the movie and uh, he gets uh, his performance to engage in that i mean i'm sure someone thought jodie foster's english accent was like the worst ever but <laughs> I, I don't know I, I thought that was fine that was fine i didn't hear like necessarily her trying too much or trying to little meaning that the american leaked through or anything it's all fine and she's a great actor so as much as i was watching 
you know, the story rather than the scope. I sank into that sort of flow as well of her English accents being, it's fine, it's fine. I can't do any better, so it's fine. And she <laughs> she, she is a character also that um, whenever she's reminded of the fact that she's a widow and she's been a widow for, uh, as she said, 23 months, she has trouble hiding that. And that, that that's the sort of uh, character of Ruline in the movie that, yes, she gets emotional when that is brought up, but she's not dealing with it properly. And that I think as cliched as that is, dramatically, I think that mm, she makes it fairly interesting, when, especially when the king calls her on that, that uh, you're treading water, essentially, uh, mentally, and dealing with your grief uh, in a way that doesn't get you um, further, further in life. So, so whatever you think of the accent, I had no problems with it. The acting is strong enough, uh, at the very least, to um, for you to not think about that necessarily. So, so what did you think? Uh, was that a detraction as such? Uh, her English accent as an American as an American actress? Well, it's a, as a as a person who works with British people all the time, I thought I would have a better. I forgot that she had to put on this British accent, and then I watched it. I was like, as someone who works with British people every day, I was I'm used to listening to British accents, so it was all right to me, but. It, it was distracting, to be honest. Like, it's still, okay, it's Jodie Foster doing a British accent. and I, I But then I remember, well, she speaks French fluently. She can do European languages if she because she knows it. So it wasn't too distracting. And I was more concerned with uh, how Char and Fat was delivering the lines. And, and looking back at it now, and this because I usually, I watch films with English subtitles on, even English language films. It, it's just something that I do. Same here. Same here. By the way, when it comes to Swedish, for some reason, I, it's either that I'm becoming older and senile, or I, I just need it. I don't. I, I don't pick up on every piece of dialogue. So, so it's all on nowadays. Right. So I was watching uh, the Corrupter. I remember not knowing what the hell Charon Fat was saying, and I'm not sure if I remember what the hell he was saying in this one when I watched it in cinemas. <laughs> but now I watch it. And I was and I was concerned. I was like, man, these dialogue is not like a ter- it's not easy for a non non native english speaker well, well we'll talk a little bit about that i've hinted at it in a cheeky way but he obviously english is his uh, main spoken dialogue in this one but what else do does the poor bugger has to deal with in this one in terms of language just to set up because uh, you would think a hollywood production would just be all english but what do they do as a matter of fact in anna and the king speak thai he speaks so much thai in this film how does that come off? I mean, is, is he struggling, or is it? Uh, is it? Does it seem seamless based on the fact that because you know he has to do a lot here. He has to tackle that. He has to tackle the fact that he must appear regal. The charisma needs to be there. Sometimes non-verbal. Sometimes verbal. It needs to be subtle. The developments in his character. He needs to be warm, empathetic, and English and Thai. I mean, all of that combined. How does he fare? I don't know. You know I, I'm just as curious as you are about the tie tie issue. I mean, I'm watching it and I can feel like maybe the tie isn't really up to snuff in this movie. I don't speak any tie, and I could tell. Like, yo, that's that's there's some accent going on there. Yeah, it's definitely tough. I didn't appreciate this when I was watching it. I didn't realize he was speaking real tie. Like, get better, Chow. You know better. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't get that impression when I was watching it as a kid, but now watching, I'm like, oh my. God, that is much harder than the British accent. Like, Jodie Foster is nothing. I mean, and we all knew that at the time that Charon in fact worked really hard in English. We knew that he, he spent a ton of money hiring an English teacher and learning English really hard, just as John Wood did when he moved to Hollywood. And we knew those stories. We heard the stories. So we knew that he was working extremely hard in English, and it definitely showed here. But, man, 
tie. My gosh. And they they obviously did it phonetically and and to and up to they wanted to keep a uh, a, a realistic through line. I remember uh, Andy Tennant's commentary on the movie mentioned that in some scenes it just became too much, man. So they for for the sake of getting on with the work, they started mixing English and Thai because they either had American actors in this case, you know, Hong Kong actor or Malay speaking actors and it was just too much for them to handle so they had to sort of compromise uh, but so so it doesn't seem sometimes logical that speaking Thai 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 and then breaking into English for some key lines and then back to Thai they probably just did that because we will be here all day man this is so hard <laughs> <laughs> and he is but his English is impeccable man I mean it's he uh, it's eloquent it's and then the performance is I think just so compelling. I mean, he is, you know, it's so wonderful to see him uh, clearly, you know, respecting her fairly early on, Anna, that is, because she is a woman that just grabs her chance. And she is a little bit too entitled for her own good as an English woman, <laughs> because we are the British. We are the, you know, we rule, rule the world. So, but he, seeing Chai, in fact, react to the fact that she stands up for and uh, wants the terms of her employment to be uh, met. And then he grants her a greater tutoring job than that was um, agreed upon. And uh, he's so good at that when he opens up. He's so charming when he's introducing his family in the garden. And he puts his guard down there for you see the pride in his face as the character. And there, obviously he talks of uh, the you know, hope for broader education to broaden hope for the future. And, you know, he, he knows obviously as a king that you can't drop all routines and the strictness of it all but it's okay that in the face of this woman that I appear welcoming and Chayafat is as good as ever at communicating that very verbally but also non-verbally just because he's acting in two different languages that doesn't mean that now his greater acting range is lost or anything I think it's all there and then some which is kind of why I think I, I feel more for this role versus the corruptor in terms of my heart beats a little bit uh, quicker for (laughs) for this role but the corruptor is great too and i'm talking about that and i'm not even touching on the fact that the the verbal back and forth between jodie foster and chai fat is pretty strong as well combining all of those traits as a character as the king and all of that so i think those are the most lasting memories of the movie those two and as a matter of fact they're in the title, so it needs to be a lasting memory, right? Well, I think the thing that really ultimately hurt the film the most was that the problem is that it's Anna and the King. Because, you know, the thing is, it has to live up, or there is that idea that it has to live up to the King and I, which, how do you live? I mean, I haven't seen the King and I, but I know about the King and I, right? Like, that's how big it is. And I, I never appreciated that. So I always thought, like, well, those must be two different things. So clearly, people can separate them, but clearly, it is hard to separate this story and the musical to this day. I mean, as I said, n- never seen it, uh, so I, I, I don't know if it's lost in appeal or, or, or not. But it, it seemed on the surface that, well, once a musical, it's older, probably lighter. This is a slightly different story. So clearly, no one will bat an eyelid when you do this again. But clearly, Joel Brunner and uh, the movie, it has a stranglehold on this story, clearly. 
Well, the thing is, if you're going to do a movie, uh, redo a movie, remake a movie, well, so to speak, not really remake, but if you're going to try and live up to a movie that stars you, Brenner, and, and, and Jodie Foster, I don't think Chow and Fat and Jodie Foster are really terrible choices. I mean, those were, they are still some of the biggest stars in the film industry and some of those legendary names. I mean, you know, Jodie Foster, I don't have to talk about. I mean, Chow and Fat, I don't have to talk about how big it is. To get those two names into this, I don't think that they really did a disservice or anything. But, of course, I have to watch The King and I to know that. But I think that was just about as respectable as they could attempt to go with, you know, trying to get getting that cast. And it, I, I get excited seeing them on screen together, uh, the, the verbal back and forth. And uh, it you, you never know, of course. But it, it really, I think, paid off. And uh, it's not a terribly nuanced historical epic, though. And as I said, the political unrest is, is this little basic story that you understand it, it doesn't get bogged down in terms of uh, political dialogue and the deeper meanings of the political ramifications and the uh, the looming violence or anything it, it's there it's a basic uh, plot hook but it's certainly not, nothing i sit there you know on the edge of my seat watching but i think andy Tennant has crafted rather a snappy entertaining romantic story anchored by leads that needs to get the attention to technical details right as well. It does, and all that's okay. So, so you don't sit there, thankfully, and just marvel at the scope and wait for spectacle, but rather you sit there waiting for uh, these two to uh, to develop. And uh, it's also funny when they uh, as they develop because there is some slight ribbing between them two. Like the, it's humorous, uh, uh, you know. Except for for instance, when the king asks uh, Jodie Foster's son Louis. If he wants to smoke, he's like, "No, no, what are you doing?" Like, "Oh, I've been smoking since I was six, The king says, "And uh, I simply wanted to open controversial discussion, like, yeah, like you like to do." <laughs> so, and and that's funny. I, I think that's funny. He's Chai uh, Fat is confidently getting that through in English and inhabiting that character. And uh, I, I take those small moments away from the movie. You know what I mean? Like, uh, rather than the spectacle and the uh, politics and the, the looming violence. Um, or, or, or what do you think those... Uh, how that work when the movie gets bigger in that regard? Uh, is, is it tolerable, acceptable, good? No, I totally agree. I, I wish that that whole side plot with Biling wasn't there. I thought that was way too much. And and there's a whole melodrama thing in the middle where you have to kill the, kill the cutest character of the film. Sorry. <laughs> Spoilers. Yeah. Um, yeah, have to kill, the, kill the, the, the cutest character of the film. And yeah, all that other stuff, I just wanted more Jodie Foster and Charm Fat together. I wanted to see their relationship build. They didn't even give us a proper dance scene. You know, everyone's looking forward to the waltz, and you only get like 30 seconds of the waltz. Instead, you get 20 minutes to buy Lane, and just like, why? What's going on here? Give me back Charm Fat. She she performs it well enough. She, she's not bad in the movie by Lane, but there, there is a case to be made for that she, she plays one of the wives the new wives and they don't show that transition very well so so it maybe they're sort of washing their hands a little bit of the fact that that they take women from their homes essentially and sell women to the king so it, it seems like she's now being transitioned to the king the king's all right though but uh, the, that transition didn't seem ugly or anything so um i, I was a little bit i had some questions about that it really doesn't matter in the long run that Biling is in the movie and Jodie Foster, I think, as a character engages enough in the negative aspects of what's going on. She questions enough, I think, in terms of 
what is going on around her, what she doesn't understand. That uh, we don't need the emotional hook of Biling's uh, character, but they, they they all perform admirably well. They're no, no, they're not bad, but maybe that's where the movie could have had its um, you know could have gone down like maybe ten fifteen minutes in length and uh, earned a little bit huge impact. Maybe I don't know. N- nothing feels stalled as such. It's just that not all elements feel as important to 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 us i guess versus uh, the core of uh, of it all yeah yeah well i don't blame i don't blame biling uh, for her 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 plot line at all yeah like you said she she does fine in it and the story might be a better film by itself but here it just feels sort of unneeded you know like it's, it's like fat it's just ultimately like fat it's just extra fat on this story that's already two and a half hours long it's like it makes you wonder where this movie needs to be that long they they do avoid melodrama neatly though. It's uh, may, maybe it's convenient, but uh, when that death happens that you um, that you referenced, uh, they they talk of the fact that you you can't when Jodie Foster enters the room and Chai Fat has the kid in his arms, she's uh, she's told that you can't be heard weeping as your sorrow will attach to so uh, that person's soul. And she will continue mm-hmm. to comfort the living. So they write that, and then they're, then therefore, therefore reel in the melodrama and keep it more internalized, which they do respond to fairly well. I kind of like that scene where Jody is is on the verge of tears, and Chayanne Fat hides his uh, hides his face from the camera as a grieving father in that regard. So I was about to say those are veteran moves. Obviously, it wasn't their idea fairly, but uh, I think that's uh, a veteran choice rather than. Uh, you know, keep it, uh, you know, uh, keep it flowing literally on screen. Oh, yeah. No, I doubt, I, I doubt that Andy Tennant would be the guy who gives Charm Fat acting tips. You know, like, exactly. hey, uh, perhaps hey, I, I came from way. Hong Kong. Melodrama is our bread and butter, so I can cry if you <laughs> exactly. like. But we can reel it in, too. That's more fun. Yeah, exactly. So just some minor more notes. It's a shame they didn't cast uh, Kenneth Tsang for, for the Corruptor because you would have had a Chai Fat triple here. <laughs> like the replacement <laughs> killers, the Corruptor, and Anna and the King. But he certainly appears here as a judge. Also, speaking Thai! <laughs> so, <laughs> English, he would have been fine with uh, English only because he, he's, his English is uh, impeccable. But... Um, that was fun to see a little uh, just recognition factor, but obviously Kenneth is uh, a, a solid enough, uh, you know, character actor to appear in a Hollywood movie too. So it, it's always nice to see. Um, so yeah, I think I do, don't have any other notes. I mean, the 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 the, the core that is Johnny Fat and the King, obviously, that thrust is 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 okay all throughout. Uh, I mean, it's the romance of it all is. I, because I don't want to spoil it, but it's more clear what they feel for each other. But it isn't cookie cutter romantic mm. beats, and maybe it helps that the writing is good. Maybe it helps that it's anchored by veteran actors that are not gonna be slotted into an age-old romance that feels awfully cliched. I'm sure you can argue that this is cliched, but it's. It feels okay. I mean, I can admit to the fact that I was kind of choked up at certain moments, and uh, I, f- I felt like a little bit <gasps> in certain moments. You see Chai Fat lean in at one point when we're at the, on the beach together uh, in the night, and you just go, oh, "Is he gonna?" <laughs> I, was, I was kind of, I was involved. I was involved. I like those two together. So, and that's not to say the stuff around them are completely wasted. It's just that the core is what's more memorable and uh, 
the personal steps they they take uh, you know me- mentally and trying to forward themselves mentally again these are fictionalized accounts and maybe the Thai are correct in thinking that this is disrespectful and completely inaccurate and maybe offensive but as a movie from from a westerner's point of view in my case that doesn't know too much about anything then it's okay i like it i'm happy to return to it based on chai and fat and jody foster alone I, I wish that the romance had gone further. And like I was saying earlier, I can't tell. I don't want to blame the director. I don't want to blame the producer. Because when you, knowing the film industry, you know that it's not the problem of a single person or a single creative position, but rather a problem with the system. Why is it that when you have an Asian male lead of a film, and I didn't know this at the time, but I know it now, it, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Why is why was there so little physical contact um, when it's supposed to be a love story? Mm-hmm. And it's a very odd thing. Of course, I'm sure someone told Chan Fat like, you know, you know, it's it's, it's 1800s. You know, they don't do that time. Blah blah blah. But it's it really does stand. It really does stick out like a sore thumb when the movie is 1999, and it is the rare, very, very rare time. Even at that time, even for today, you have a ma- Asian male romantic lead, and they do don't do any romantic thing. The most that they do is, I think, um, it's when Chan Fat puts his hand on on Jodie Foster's face at one point, and that's it. And I don't mean like squeezing it, like, like warning her. I mean like, <laughs> look at you, look at you. I'll be back. Listen I promise. Yeah. Yeah, listen to me, you. No. no, it's like a little caress, whatever. But yeah. that the fact that he doesn't get to do more than that was uh, really, st- really distracted me in this viewing. Even though I, I do enjoy the moments where where the physical contact is at the forefront, because um, the 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 wall, I guess, in the story they argue is the fact that an English woman and a king can't uh, can't possibly go that far together. Which is sort of a heartbreaking line towards the end of the movie, um, uh, but but yeah, you're, you're right. The, the, throughout the decades, there is that notion of uh, we can put Asian leads at the forefront, but not t- take it into romantic territory necessarily. I mean, it, we, it, there's plentiful examples of uh, of that, and obviously that shouldn't be a problem in the eyes of general audiences. I mean, if general audiences had a say, we would have bravery in cinema. Like you read about, right? Because uh, if they were to dictate a little bit more, you would have had uh, bravery and uh, things uh, Things would be uh, n- notions and uh, tropes would be challenged a bit more. But sometimes studios think for audiences, which is not uh, not the best thing always. But uh, I just have a minor, minor, minor note uh, left here. Uh, Biling, of course, we mentioned. Uh, I-, I didn't realize how, how much of an internationally working actress she was looking at the filmography uh, prior and certainly subsequent but uh, obviously Hong Kong film fans would would have caught her I hope anyway as the fetus dumplings cook in Fruit Chan's dumplings mm. uh, that, that's a wild biling uh, role if you will both in the um, in the short uh, short movie version and the feature length uh, version of uh, of dumplings uh, that's a uh, biling uh, going uh, going all out and uh, deliciously so Louis Louis, the son of Anna is played by Tom Felton of course went on to become synonymous with the Harry Potter franchise as he was Draco Malfoy in the Harry Potter movies Uh, the little prick Draco Malfoy he is a sweet kid in 1999 and two years later his life or one year later his life would change forever and ever Uh, that's the end of my notes buddy Uh, anything else you want to mention about Anna and the King 
No. I, oh, actually, one thing I was a bit blurry about is because the real um, Anna Leonowitz, she was in Thailand for like, what, five, six years, something like that. But the film wasn't clear about uh, how long the timeline was, how long the story spanned. I don't think there was a very clear uh, a timeline, right? No, they no, they never really did that. They, they yeah. only start. They only said at the beginning of the movie, I guess, what year it started at. But uh, but yeah, it's um, presumably it felt like they a year or two. I don't know. It's certainly not a week. Yeah, yeah. Also, one one interesting thing is, like I said, the whole cultural thing about what the British uh, brought and how Hollywood portrays this. It it was, feels like it was trying to be politically correct, but it all comes out in the end, comes out a bit weird because at the end of the day. It shows Jodie Foster teaching child and fat monogamy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this is the man who married Sally Ye and Joey Wang in the in, in Diary of a Big Man. He, this man does not need monogamy. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, it, 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 no, I don't. If if Sally Ye and Joey Wang cannot get him to be monogamous, I doubt Jodie Foster is going to get the job done. And yes, she does. So it was a kind of really funny lie at the end. And and seeing how clumsily. Hollywood was still trying to do that whole, um, oh, we're looking back colonialism, and that was kind of wrong, right? Like, yeah, that was totally wrong. So it was it's still pretty clumsy about it at the time. So it, it was interesting to watch in hindsight, of course. Yeah, so some surrounding elements, again, that are not uh, clicking fully. Uh, so uh, even though, yes, that, that uh, line is uh, obviously about the core of uh, Jodie Foster and Chai, but uh, talking of... Uh, you know, in my religion, this is what we believe. <laughs> you know, that's these are the rules, man. Very good points. As for availability, then there's no there's no Blu-ray upgrade in either UK or the US for Anna and the King. Uh, I only spotted a German Blu-ray, which might not be a good idea for those in need of English subtitles for the Thai dialogue, because all of that dialogue isn't permanent on the print. Only certain sections are permanent on the print, and most Thai dialogue is um, in the optional subtitles. So. The German Blu-ray might not be a good option in terms of that. There's a good chance you do have HD rental or streaming options available to you because my local iTunes, for instance, has the movie available in HD and possibly it's on Netflix uh, in various regions as well. But if you do want to get the old Fox US DVD, it's still available cheap through through Amazon, for instance, both new and used, and it has some interesting extras like uh, the mentioned uh, commentary by Andy Tennant. He, he keeps up the pace throughout the movie fairly well, the long movie. And it also has uh, a uh, chunk of deleted scenes that, for instance, shows uh, a uh, scene that's in more modern day in terms of when uh, when Anna is now an old woman and she is being visited by the son of the king in those scenes uh, they use those as uh, wraparound scenes but ultimately those were not deemed uh, necessary and were cut so but they're included on the dvd and there's some optional commentary by andy Tennant explaining why those scenes were cut uh, probably would have padded the movie but uh, you never know you you uh, you have you you conceptualize what what you want to have in the movie and then you realize that maybe test audiences thought that well these scenes are not necessary seeing jodie foster in all uh, old age makeup so off they go so yeah i could imagine any tenant just doing the um the commentary for every deleted scene and he's talking about why it was cut and he says because the movie is two and a half hours long or length which is the only reason you need to state on a commentary like that why was it cut well too long well, we did a crappy job <laughs> none of this was good so i'm gonna present it to you anyway be shamed <laughs> 
and loose face. Uh, so, so yeah, that's Anna and the King for you, our East Screen, West Screen selection for this episode. And uh, that's what we do, uh, like that we do, when uh, when I get you on the show to have a East Screen, West Screen selection. But it also affords us the opportunity to branch out of Hong Kong and talk about the adventures of uh, actors, and actors and directors in Hollywood. So obviously, we got to do a at least three-hour discussion of the nuances of when Choi Hak made Double Team. <laughs> At least an hour would be devoted to Dennis Rodman and his uh, fashion choices in that one. Kent, Kent, I hope you don't bring me back on for any more um, Charm Fat Hollywood movies because I know what's coming up. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember. You know what the thrill for me was after that adventure? To see him, and this is going back now. It's 12 years ago now. Holy shit. But the thrill for me was in 2006, Chaim Fat reunited with Anne Hoy again. And I, mm. the postmodern modern life of my aunt. And it's not a movie that's remembered or talked of, but I quite liked it because it was Chaim Fat and Anne Hoy closing the circle a little bit. And he's back from his most of his Hollywood adventures and now back in the comfort zone of working with uh, Anne Hoy and uh, I didn't I didn't dislike that development, uh, but uh, full disclosure, not seen many of his movies from the last 10 years, if I'm being honest. Uh, the various mainland movies, Confucius, I'm sure is good because it's giant fat, but had no interest to look it up personally. The latest one I saw, Shanghai, maybe, the, the co-production with him and Gong Li. Mm. It was okay. Mm. It was okay. His English seemed a lot better in Shanghai versus uh, some of the stuff in the late 90s. So he clearly kept working on his English. Directed by a Swedish director, so I had to watch it. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> law. It's law. <laughs> uh, but uh, at any rate, uh, I uh, I thank you for coming on, Kevin. And uh, you get a full firm plug of whatever you want to plug uh, out there in the world. Uh, like uh, Maybe uh, uh, some of your work is available uh, that you provided translations for. Maybe that's available on disc by now, so maybe people can pick up uh, some uh, subtitled work of yours. But uh, regardless, um, the floor is yours. Uh, what do you want to plug about your uh, about your life, working life? Oh gosh, I don't remember if, what if my films have come out. I mean, Love Contractually, I remember, is definitely on. Most recently films that are done i think our shining days was the maybe the one that that's the latest one that came on video uh that's out uh it's a chinese uh comedy from direct from the writer of uh, love is not blind uh i think that's out on video now um otherwise oh gosh see i've done so many i've lost track ken i don't even know when they're coming on video anymore well it's not like you need to it's not your responsible to it's your responsibility to uh, promote this, obviously. So, um, well, the thing is, if my name if my name is on it, I would generally buy the DVD. But I don't know if I have sort of not caught up in watching the final cuts of the films I worked on. I think ah, uh, the next one is Zombieology. Zombieology, uh, enjoy yourself tonight. I think that's coming on video, or that just came on video. That should have my name on it, and uh, I did the subtitles for that. Uh, that's a zombie movie coming from Hong Kong. Uh, that so that's out now, I think. So so uh, so they're, they're getting a taste for the zombie movie in Hong Kong again. Like uh, didn't you, didn't we have Zombie Fight Club a couple of years ago? Yeah, but I haven't seen Zombie Fight Club. But anyway, that was <laughs> that I've never seen that one. But yeah, Zombieology. Uh, a lot of people don't like it. So what can I say? But oh, I think uh, my name is on that movie. You did your work as as you should, and professionally so. So that's that's all that matters. So you you yeah. you, you you should separate it. You know. That yeah, yeah, yeah. I did what I could. Um. Anyway. Um. What's the other thing? Yeah. Oh, follow me on Twitter. 
Um, I'm on the Golden Rock. That's one word, uh, the Golden Rock. And if you do want to uh, contact me uh, for anything, uh, including TV interviews, whatever, um, I am at uh, Kevin at AsiaInCinema.com. Excellent. Well, and the rest of the contact information really quickly for all your Podcast on Fire network needs. Go to podcastonfire.com, follow the social media links available to you, including iTunes and uh, Facebook. And uh, let us know if you uh, if you have any um, any opinions and so forth about uh, Chime Fat's uh, Hollywood adventures, uh, whether Anime King related or Dragon Ball related, then uh, do share. Uh, I I know this though. Like I'm I I the Taiwanese Dragon Ball is awesome. The, the Dragon Ball the Magic Begins, like the nineties <laughs> movie, live action movie. That was fun, crazy in the way that Taiwanese and Hong Kong movies can be. And the the character from Dragon Ball that has a shell on his back. I don't know what it's like in the anime, but the, in in the live action Taiwanese Dragon Ball. He was a pervert, and a great big old pervert as well. And I've, <laughs> I always thought to myself, is that the role Chime Fat has in Dragon Ball? And obviously he doesn't have a turtle shell on his back. Maybe <laughs> that would be fun if that was it, but I, I've heard nothing but bad things about Dragon Ball in general. So, And there was a problematic movie, so that, that, that tells you all you need to know about it. But uh, I, I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you, Kevin, it's always challenging sometimes to, be, to deliver coherent thoughts at least i think so on a movie that you really dislike because you don't want to you don't want to just be you know bs crap 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 suck you you, you want <laughs> to convey that sort of coherent way i suppose so it's, it's all it's sometimes more difficult so that's a challenge so dragon ball we'll see bulletproof monk we'll see <laughs> no desire to necessarily today but uh in a week's time maybe i think like oh that work sounds fun <laughs> you know i can pick up the dvd for a cent uh, but at any rate, we are available on podcast.fi.com and all those other sites are listed uh, in the show post and on the site. So I've been Kennedy and with me was Kevin Ma of the East Screen West Screen Podcast and the subtitling world in general. So uh, thank you, Kevin, and uh, uh, say goodbye. You have the last word. Thank you for having me, Ken, uh, and thank you, everybody. I'll see you next time. <laughs>